I did have, you know, great roles in great organizations, um, but for some reason it just, you know, it wasn't working for me uh, anymore on sort of a, a personal, professional level. The Obama administration had passed the Affordable Care Act, and so uh, somebody I had worked with previously um, reached out to me and asked me to become her deputy in, in a very small office in a branch of the Department of Health and Human Services. I basically said, you know, give it a shot, sat down, talked to my wife. She said, sure, you know, give it a shot, do it for two years. Uh, what's the worst that can happen? It turned out to be, without a shadow of a doubt, the best career decision uh, I've ever made in my life. Everything I'd done until that date, even though I didn't realize it, and even though at times I'd been like, you know, disgruntled, had sort of prepared me uh, for this moment. Welcome to the Digital Irish Podcast, where innovation meets heritage and global impact is the name of the game. I'm Dave Byrne, your host on this journey through the stories of Irish innovators, entrepreneurs, and creators. We are here to showcase the incredible talent that Irish visionaries bring to the world. I'm coming up to living in the DC area for about two years. And one thing that surprised me when I went back to Ireland over the Christmas period, I heard a lot of people asking me questions like, are there many people working in tech in DC? One of the things I wanted to do with the podcast was actually show that there is a vibrant community in DC and there is actually people succeeding in tech. I looked at my network and one of the people that really stood out to me was our guest today, Niall Brennan. And Niall is somebody that not only has had a fantastic career in tech, there's a story here about pivoting your career and pivoting your skills and knowledge throughout your career as well that I just thought was really fascinating. So beyond just hearing about his success in the tech ecosystem, I think there's also a great learning here for anybody who's looking to change roles now that we're in this new year or looking to even change careers. So there's plenty that Nal can teach us about this. He's very open about the challenges that they face, challenges that he's trying to overcome now as the senior advisor to the CDC director, but how much he has actually leaned in and enjoyed it. So with that, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. So I'm going to drop you straight in the interview. Firstly, Niall, I want to just say thank you so much for joining on the podcast today. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. DC isn't usually seen as a hub for Irish in tech. I think a lot of people, when they think of Irish in tech, they think Boston, New York, San Francisco. Take us back. How did you find yourself in DC? Well, you know, there's the old saying that DC is, is Hollywood for ugly people, but uh, I got there by a fairly uh, circuitous route. Um, goes back to the mid nineties. I, um, I won uh, a green card lottery, one of the Morrison visas and decided to spend a summer in, in San Francisco. Uh, I had also applied to graduate school at Georgetown university because I sort of had, you know, nothing better to do, but I applied to the foreign service program and they turned me down. So I was minding my own business in San Francisco, having a great time. Uh, I was all set to go back and uh, do a master's in computer science, uh, Queens in Belfast. And all of them in mid August, 1994, Georgetown contacted me and said, uh, listen, if you rewrite your 500 word personal statement to say that you want to do a master's in public policy instead of a master's of science in foreign service, we will give you a full scholarship. And I said, I like the sound of that deal and um, uh, wrote the 500 word personal statement, ended up in DC about uh, a week later and uh, and never left. So that was back in the 90s, right? So what has kept you in DC ever since? 
first of all, DC is just a great place to live. You know, it was also practical. I was getting a master's in public policy. Uh, DC is, you know, the place uh, to to do that kind of work, whether it's, you know, you're working on the Hill or in a government department or in a think tank or some association that's uh, that's trying to, to lobby the government. So uh, the first thing I did was get a job with a consulting company because I wanted to work somewhere that my parents might recognize the employer, uh, hated it, lasted a year, and then uh, went into uh, a think tank called the Urban Institute uh, and a variety of, of other roles then over the years. And this was, you know, long before tech or even digital uh, really existed or was just starting, you know, in many respects, it was, you know, the end of the analog age. So that's actually kind of an interesting one for me because you started off with this interest in in, in kind of public policy. You're now finding yourself in, in da- uh, data and tech, like, when we first spoke about the potential of you coming onto the podcast, you mentioned you're an operational animal. So like, where do you think this, this love of data came from initially? Yeah. So I always loved data. I just never really understood the incredible journey that it would take me on. You know what I mean? So one day I went into my supervisor's office and she said, can you code? And I said, no. And so she reached behind her, um, to, to behind to, to the bookshelf behind her chair and pulled out this big white SAS programming guide. And she said, well, it's time you learned. And she handed me the book and I went, I went back to the office and I just started, you know, noodling away uh, with very simple stuff. And um, what I really say a lot is I started analyzing data before data was cool. When it was this thing that researchers did that eventually showed up in a paper four or five years later. But it was really foundational uh, to me being able to use data to execute really important operational projects at scale later in my career. The issue for me was using it in a research context uh, eventually did become uh, quite boring. So if you do like a, a fairly rapid fast forward, uh, until 2010. At that time, I was working at the Brookings Institution, which is like a really like well-regarded, you know, famous, you know, think tank around the world. And I was absolutely, you know, miserable. And an opportunity came along to to join the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Affordable Care Act uh, of 2000. Which was, you know, arguably one of the most important pieces of healthcare legislation uh, in the history of the U.S. I I find that like you're you're telling like a, a really engaging story. You you seem to be uh, a bit of a natural storyteller yourself. How how are you using data to help you tell stories? It's a lot of fun, and I think. The most important thing is when you're dealing with very complex issues related to anything in this particular circumstance, uh, the U.S. healthcare system, it's just fascinating the way uh, data can shed light on a problem in a way that like paragraphs and paragraphs or pages and pages wouldn't. But it's not just the data itself. It's how you package it and present it and like you said tell a story around the data so the interesting thing for me is is that you know anybody can code anybody can put you know stuff in a table but the real challenge is walking into a room um, full of busy people who are you know maybe only going to give you 60 or 90 seconds or three minutes of their time and using data that helps them you know, solve a really pressing problem that, you know, their superiors are are, are, are shouting at them about um, or that, you know, some external uh, crisis or different things like that. So sometimes it's just like, you know, zeroing in on, okay, there are, you know, 27 data points on this page or this chart or whatever, but here are the one or two that really give you what you need or tell the story uh, that you want to know. But I've seen so many people like, you know, just go into rooms and lose entire rooms because it's just about the numbers. And what you really have to do is you have to 
convince people why the numbers that you're about to go through are some of the most important things that they're going to hear that day and why it's, you know, going to solve or help make go away or ameliorate at least some of their problems. One of the things I remember an old mentor used to say to me was uh, people that can pull data can maybe bring in facts, but the storytellers turn those that data into insights and that becomes yeah. a very different thing, you know? Yeah, you have to make it real and you have to make it relevant and, you know, tangible to some problem or or issue at hand. And I want to go back to the fact that you, to put it in your words, you started working with data before it was cool. And, you know, you've been working in it for 30 odd years now. You must have seen some major shifts during that time. Like how has... How has the field of like analytics evolved over the course of your career? And like, what are some of the most significant changes that you've witnessed? <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. And um, thanks for making me feel really old, Dave. Um, but, um, you know, <laughs> when I started, no, it's fine. <laughs> I'm only joking. And when I started, it, um, you know, we were still sort of, um, in the era of, of mainframes and PC storage was, uh, was very limited and expensive. So I literally remember I used to code a lot uh, in uh, using software called uh, SAS, statistical analytics software. And I would have to, as a, you know, created and analyzed data sets, um, these data sets would sometimes get quite big. The reason they would get big was that I um, I predominantly um, over my career have analyzed um, healthcare claims data. So just for, you know, for people to understand uh, the, the US healthcare system uh, is um, every time you go to a doctor, it generates a record, right? Every time you fill a, a, a prescription, it generates a record. Every time you go to the hospital, it generates a record. So all these records um, are collect collected particularly for the government programs medicare and medicaid and they're assembled in these you know giant databases so think about it medicare has 50 million people um, all you know using all kinds of healthcare services and all kinds of prescription drugs so very quickly you get to billions and billions of lines of data right and so back in the day when you were analyzing that they're literally weren't computers outside of mainframes that could handle that much data. And even if you like, you know, created small extracts, I remember uh, buying uh, for my job, uh, external hard drives that were one gigabyte in size. And these were considered to be, you know, state of the art, and I would still like fill them and, you know, not be able to, uh, to finish my work. So um, speed, and storage because now i mean everything is basically limitless right the only thing that really is constraining you is how much you want to you know pay um aws or or azure every month uh the next thing, biggest thing that's changed is obviously uh the ability to uh, visualize data uh really well uh i think is is crucially crucially important uh whether that's you know, off the shelf things like um, uh, Tableau or things like that. Uh, but then also even taking that to the, to, to the next level, like the kind of stuff that you see uh, in the New York Times or other media organizations with the, with the scrolly telling for like, as you scroll down um, a web page, you know, there are these interactive graphics that are, you know, really, you know, literally telling you a story um, using data uh, as you scroll down the page. And so uh, for me, uh, that was uh, really, uh, really powerful stuff and something that I used a lot when I was um, uh, CEO of the Healthcare Cost Institute uh, in DC. And we won uh, several awards for our ability to take these massive amounts of healthcare claims data, um, you know, layer on a lot of insights uh, and then present it via scro scrolly telling um, to uh, uh, to the outside to the outside world, and then finally, obviously, people are are very uh, excited about um, AI right now, particularly generative AI. Uh, I think it has incredible uh, potential. You know, I think we also have to be uh, a little bit cautious. I also think that AI has been uh, 
around for a long time now and you know for a while i think it was almost like a uh, a miracle cure in search of a disease uh, but obviously with the um limited language models now uh it's got a whole new uh, momentum so we'll have to see uh we'll have to see where that goes it's interesting when you were talking about how you know you were using state-of-the-art storage capabilities with like uh that you know, using up a gigabyte was incredible, but you were still doing it with the the volume of work that you were doing. I was actually watching um, a movie there the other day from like the mid uh, mid nineties, and I think they were trying to say something about how incredibly um, large like their network was, and they were like, "Yeah, it's it's a total of thirty two gigabytes," and yeah. it was one of those moments where I was like. I've like, I've, I've had like smaller downloads, <laughs> like yeah, like a bigger downloads. So. Oh yeah. And... I mean, even the size of this podcast, who knows what it'll end up as, but like, I, I, I even remember the name. It was called a jazz drive. J A Z. I want to pivot slightly. Um, and when I'm saying pivoting slightly, I also want to talk about pivoting because, you know, um, Throughout your career, you know, you were building up like a, a very successful career. And, you know, on paper by 2010, you had what could be seen from somebody from the outside looking in as a really successful career, a great role, high exposure. I think like back then you were, you know, you were a very known entity. You were somebody that people were inviting to conferences and to, um, kind of uh, speak on behalf of the industry, um, but in the private sector. But then you actually then pivoted into a a government role, like a, 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 a public sector role. So what kind of inspired that move from what, what many could see as a very successful and, uh, you know, a, a lucrative role? Um, yeah, so successful, maybe lucrative. I'm not, I'm not so sure, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, desperation can, uh, can spur many things, but, um, you know, more seriously, and I alluded to this uh, a little bit, uh, earlier. I mean, I, I did, uh, I did have, you know, great roles and great organizations, uh, but for some reason it just, you know, it wasn't working for me uh anymore on sort of a, a personal professional level and i was just starting to to question uh you know the meaning of it all you know i don't know maybe i was in my you know late 30s or something happened like uh an early midlife crisis or something like that but um you know because i'd done the think tank thing and then uh I had spent uh, some time uh, essentially on Capitol Hill. I worked for the Congressional Budget Office and then the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, both fairly high profile roles related to uh, healthcare policy in the United States. And then I then I bounced back to Brookings for a while, but um, it just wasn't working for me. I mean, again, I, I feel some of it was the fact that, um, you know, at a place like Brookings, it's a very famous place, but I only had a master's degree and, um, you know, that's a very academic institution uh, with, with, with lots of lots and lots of PhDs. And, you know, the the entire structure of the organization was was actually like if you didn't have a PhD, you were kind of a second class citizen. Uh, and so I would be, you know, working alongside, you know, my peers, people my own age. Uh, and, you know, producing, you know, as good or better quality work than them. But I couldn't have the same title as them because I wasn't a PhD. So, you know, after a while, that starts to get uh, a little bit old. But I think more more generally, again, it was just, I was like, am I really going to just, you know, write these papers and do these analyses for the next, you know, 20 or 30 years? And yes, you know, it's fun to be uh, invited to conferences and different things like that. So like I mentioned, I basically said, you know, give it a shot, sat down, talked to my wife, always very supportive to me and um she said sure you know give it a shot do it for two years uh what's the worst that can happen like you know you'll you'll hate it and you'll move on you'll find something else and it turned out to be without a shadow of a doubt the best career decision uh i've ever made in my life 
Um, the Obama administration had passed the Affordable Care Act, which uh, made, you know, a whole bunch of reforms to healthcare policy in the United States uh, and also expanded uh, healthcare coverage coverage to people via healthcare.gov. And so uh, somebody I had worked with previously um, reached out to me and asked me to become her deputy in, in a very small office in a branch of the Department of Health and Human Services uh, uh, in DC uh, called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So that's because I walked through the doors at CMS and there was this incredibly complex legislation that had just passed and all the requirements that it was imposing upon CMS to implement and develop regulations and set up new programs and different things like that, almost all the requirements were heavily data dependent. So where should this pilot launch? How will we know if this is doing well? Will we know if it's actually lowering the cost of healthcare? Blah, blah, blah. And I walked in there and it was clear that there was a leadership vacuum around data, that this was an agency that generated billions and billions of data points by paying all these medical services. But, and it was very good at storing the data, but it wasn't very good at, you know, leveraging the data for insight and to make the organization itself run better. So, and it just really felt that everything I'd done until that date, even though I didn't realize it, and even though at times I'd been like, you know, disgruntled, had sort of prepared me uh, for this moment. And so uh, I just started putting my hand up and saying, well, you can fix that problem with data. You can fix this problem with data. How about we use data for this problem? And of course, I became fairly popular fairly quickly, right? Because these were hard problems. And also I was just approaching things in a way that people hadn't really done things before. I didn't think, you know, everybody thought it was innovative. I thought it was, you know, common sense. So, um, and one thing led to another. So I started off in 2010 as deputy director of a small office called the Office of Policy. And I finished in 2017 as uh, chief data officer uh, of the organization with about 100 people on staff and a a budget of about, I don't know, 50 or $75 million, um, you know, building, you know, data warehouses and fielding very complex surveys and and different things like that. So uh, the hardest I ever worked and, um, you know, the most fun I ever had. It's really interesting that you say it's the hardest that you ever worked and that it's most fun that you had. But at the core of it, it sounds like that for you, it felt more purposeful. It felt like that you were really, truly having an impact. And that's kind of where the where the enjoyment came from. You may have been working more, but it it felt like that you were having a bigger impact. Yeah, I mean, working in government is kind of like a cult, you know, so, um, and if you buy into it, um, it, uh, the feeling of of impact and accomplishment is is kind of hard to beat. You know, you're obviously not doing it for the money, right? Uh, And it's actually really hit home for me uh, since I've, returned to the government, you know, I started at CDC again at the at the end of August, the Centers for Disease Control, and we can get into that a little bit later if you want, Dave. But um, And I had really great and rewarding uh, professional uh, experiences uh, between uh, 2017 and, uh, and 2023, but you, you just cannot beat uh, the impact of government. And I had gone in again in 2010, like very skeptical. I, ha- I had a bunch of like fairly negative stereotypes uh, about government work and slow moving bureaucracy and, you know, people who wouldn't care and different things like that. And, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, um, some of those stereotypes are true. And I think it can also depend on what part of the government you're in or what, you know, agency that you're in. And I would say this could apply in any country uh, in the world, whether it's the US or Ireland or somewhere else. And I, again, just happened to walk in at a time where this agency had a sort of no choice but to adapt and evolve and move more quickly. And 
let me tell you, they made some huge, huge mistakes that ended up on, you know, the front pages all around the world, particularly the inability of healthcare.gov to, to launch um, in, uh, in 2013. Um, but um, you also, there was, I think, a very, very special uh, group of people. We were all around the same age. And, you know, over that period, we sort of gradually uh, ascended into various, you know, leadership positions, um, confronted some, you know, truly <laughs> existential crises together. But like, uh, you know, it sounds like trite, but like, you know, we had each other's backs and there was just this like implicit trust um, in each other that uh, that we could, you know, figure things out if we uh, if we stayed together as a team. Like I am still uh, in touch um, with all of those people uh, on a personal and professional level. Like there's a, a group of, you know, probably seven or eight or nine of us. And, you know, anybody can email anybody for anything and, you know, get a, a quick response or some advice or, or, or a favor. So um, it was a really uh, special time and a special group of people. It, it almost sounds like you were in the trenches together and you, you just kind of bonded over that. That's, uh, that's amazing. A hundred percent. I mean, um, we actually we actually say that like the, the things that we went through um, both scarred us and shaped us for the rest of our professional lives. And, you know, we 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 went through them uh, with these people. So there, there literally is um, uh, an unbreakable bond in a way, like when we're at conferences and we're all in a variety of roles, both public and private sector now. But whenever, you know, there might be a big conference where, you know, two or three or four or five of us are together, like people tease us because like we almost formed, we're so happy to see each other. <laughs> like it could be a crowded reception and we don't, we don't even realize we're doing it, but but people tell us that we kind of formed this circle and we just talk to each other and, and nobody else can can penetrate the circle. It's great to hear because I think um, whenever you're in a in a job where there's intense work, but there's a great collaborative spirit, it doesn't feel as tough as those jobs where the work may not be as intense, but the spirit is not of collaboration. It's very much like, hey, work in your silo. It sounds like it was very much the same during this time for you. Yeah, we didn't have the choice. I mean, you know, the agency and the Obama administration and to a certain extent, the US were the laughing stock of the world because that website failed so badly. You know what I mean? And it failed badly because uh, we were we were we were doing things, you know, the, the old school way where we were, you know, isolated and tribal and, and different things like that. And so uh, in order to, to fix that, you, you, you have to check everything at the door, you check your ego, check your name badge. It's a badgeless culture. It doesn't matter if you're an employee or a contractor or an advisor or whatever. And, you know, you, people just have to literally work uh, around the clock um, for a long period of time to make sure uh, that that kind of you know, failure uh, and embarrassment wouldn't happen again. And it wasn't just fixing the website. And this is, you know, getting maybe a little bit into the weeds, but, you know, it's interesting to me because I'm a data guy. So you fix the website and that's great, right? It provides a better front end uh, consumer experience. But uh, because so many things were broken uh, with the website, it had actually uh, completely messed up uh, all the, the data infrastructure uh, behind it. So people had People who thought that they had health insurance coverage didn't, and people who didn't want health insurance coverage did. Um, the system, when it failed, couldn't handle twins. So families with twins who had signed up, um, only one of their kids uh, had health insurance coverage. And so we were literally, you know, making phone calls <laughs> in the background to insurance companies saying, uh, do us a favor and you know cover the other kid and we'll you know we'll figure it out and we'll we'll, we'll settle up with you um, later and then because all that data was so bad it created a looming catastrophe for year two when you know the eyes of the you know certainly the nation would be on us uh, and if we didn't have the right information in the database for year two we would have been potentially renewing people with health insurance coverage who didn't want it and not renewing 
health insurance coverage for people who did want it. So that required months and months and months of going back and forth between CMS and about 45 or 50 different health insurers um, requiring them to send, they would send us. And again, this is the thing about data, right? Like you can talk about AI and limited language models and like, you know, and all that fancy stuff, right? But sometimes data and sometimes like operational excellence is about blocking and tackling, like really simple stuff. So we, the health insurance companies would send us weekly rosters of who they had in their systems. And we would have to compare those rosters uh, against what was in this, you know, master, you know, database that we had uh, built. And gradually uh, over uh, 12 or 14 or 16 week period, we got to a place where we had, you know, 99% convergence. But when we took over the project, we were at about 60% convergence, which would have been a disaster. It's not just like kind of being able to handle data. It's also about being able to kind of, uh, you know, pivot quickly, take actions quickly, but also find innovative ways to kind of make sure that, you know, whenever you see something wrong, that you can kind of take action on it uh, straight away. And uh, it, it, it sounds like it must have been such an intense time period. Yeah, that's an understatement. Um, you know, I referenced that it's the hardest I ever worked in my life. Like every single day, Saturdays, Sundays, um, I would have uh, emergency conference calls at like um, at two in the morning, and then uh, another one at at five in the morning. Uh, it was it was really it was really all hands on deck. And it, you know, I, I mean, I was you know running you know the process or running a part of the process, but like. You know, it, 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 the, the team, again, of people that I had from multiple different contractors and, and people who worked for me at CMS, I literally walked in one day and I said, like, whatever you're working on, you're not going to be working on that for the next four months and uprooted them. And, you know, they they all, you know, uh, made the same sacrifices. I mean, this was like literally telling people who who spoke French that they had 24 hours to learn German. Uh, these folks like dropped everything and literally became experts or as expert as they could overnight and then eventually became you know nobody in the country knew more about this data uh, than the people who worked for me i've been incredibly i've been incredibly fortunate to um just have some of the most um, amazingly smart people uh, i've ever met um not only work for me but like, you know, bust their asses for me um, and have, have a good time doing it. For me, the fact that I have um, uh, built and led uh, great teams who work hard and, and enjoy doing it is, um, is the thing that gives me uh, the most um, pride and satisfaction. So you have this pride and satisfaction looking back over, you know, the last few years and you know, there may be people now listening to this podcast feeling like the way that you were back in 2010, where they were a little bit, I don't know, um, frustrated with their current environment, but reluctant to kind of shake things up. What kind of advice would you give to those people who may be inspired by listening to the, uh, the stories that you've just been telling us there? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's hard. Um, it's easy for me to say, do it, right? Because, you know, I did it and it, and it worked out, right? And um, a lot of it was hard work, but some, some of it was work. But I would honestly say, like, life is, life is too short to be miserable or unfulfilled. And I know that, like, there are, um, you know, financial considerations and family and, and different things uh, like that to take into account. But like you, you, you really, you cannot beat uh, the feeling of waking up every morning and being excited or, you know, waking up every morning and having like, you know, seven new ideas that you can't wait to, to tell people about because you know that like those people will get uh, excited about it too. And like, I had a lot of mornings where I woke up, you know, prior to 2010 and I was like, oh, Jesus another day of this, like, you know, how many, how many days is it until Friday or, you know, maybe I can, 
you know, leave at four and, you know, go to a happy hour or, or, or something like that. So, um, and even though I would say, you know, maybe we should, you know, I'm not sure if my family would agree or not, but even though like I was around a lot less or like a lot busier, um, I was probably like happier and more present when I, when I was here, you know, because I, I, I kind of, I was, I was scratching that itch um, for uh, for personal um, fulfillment and career satisfaction. So it it is honestly one 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 of the greatest feelings in the world, uh, and uh, I'm truly truly fortunate to have had uh, a, se- a series of incredible experiences um, since 2010. And that's in no way again to to, to denigrate um, what happened before that. Those were incredible jobs, and I. You know, I can't reiterate enough. I could not have done what I have done over the last, you know, 10, 12, 13 years without um, that first 10, 12, 13 years. You know what I mean? Um, I just couldn't have uh, because that, that that gave me the tools and and the insights to, to it had just been so internalized uh, in me. Um, I remember my first uh, job at Pricewaterhouse, the consulting job that I only had for a year. And um, I was just code monkey, right? That was when I was using the jazz drives and I would like code, 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 program, program, program. And I would like do all this coding and I would march triumphantly into my boss's office uh, and I'd show him the results. And he was, you know, older guy like me now. And he would look at them and he'd be like, he'd be like, that's wrong. And I'd be like, I'd be like, it can't be wrong. I've spent like, you know, six hours coding it. Uh, and he'd say, he'd say, he'd say, it's wrong. Just, you know, go back, check your work. And I would go back and I would check my work and I would be wrong. And I'd be like, how, how did he know just by glancing at it, you know? And the, the crazy thing for me is even with all the advances that we've talked about, and, and let me tell you, like the, the, the people who work for me now, like the, the data scientists or the coders or whatever you want to call them, um, like they can absolutely run rings around me, even at my peak. Like they can do things with data that I didn't even know was possible. But you know what? They bring me stuff and I can look at it. And at a glance, I can tell if something's off or if something's wrong. And it, it gives me immense satisfaction that the old dog still has a couple of tricks uh because you know 90 percent of the time or more i'm right and they have the same reaction they're like they can't be wrong you know shut up old man you know leave, leave it to the to the smart kids and i'll be like go back and check those numbers don't make sense and they go back and they check and the numbers don't make sense and uh it's just you know it, it's it's it, it's innate um uh, uh in me Really interesting. So now I do have a question to ask on that then, because it, it does feel like that you've you've taken like the skills and the learnings from your previous role, like, and it seems like you've be, been able to find so many different transferable skills and so many transferable learnings from the 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 work that you did pre twenty ten to now the work that you're doing in the public sector and uh, the work that you're now doing with the CDC. Uh, Dave, can you ask that question again? I got distracted. Sorry. Yeah, no worries at all. Um, So uh, from, from the sounds of, uh, hang on, let me just pause a sec. (laughs) So from what you're saying here and from the sounds of the, the story there about like you bringing data to, somebody within PwC is that there are still so many learnings and so many skills that you have developed uh, over the years and previous to 2010. Like, did you find that even with this career pivot that you did have all of this transferable skills and knowledge that you could then apply into the public sector and even to this day at the CDC? Yeah, I would say there's the hard skills and the soft skills, right? Uh, and I would say from a data and analytic perspective, I think I had a lot of what I needed. That's not to say that, you know, <clears throat> I haven't learned 
you know, different approaches or, you know, you know, different types of data analyses or new, new ways to, to present data. But, but that's all just, those are all hard skills. I think where I have actually grown the most is in the soft skills in terms of how to navigate uh, complex, sometimes dysfunctional organizations uh, in a successful way, uh, how to be uh, tenacious uh, and not give up, how to sort of, I would have been a bit of a hothead too earlier in my career and like sort of, you know, gotten mad at people and stuff like that. And again, this is all just, you know, I think age and wisdom as corny as it sounds and like nobody really, nobody really likes the guy in the office who's always, you know, complaining or moaning or stuff like that but like people um people like a a more uh more measured approach people don't like people who you know the the, they also don't like the person who never shuts up even if they're not moaning you know what i mean so uh i don't know again these are just things that have that that have worked for me um personally but it's like you know be calm be tenacious you know don't speak all the time, but when you speak, you know, people will listen or, or, or when you speak, make sure that you're, you know, you're speaking words and things that actually, you know, move the discussion or the meeting forward instead of, you know, meaningless corporate bullshit. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. So I, you know, I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit because you there's something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, which was that there's kind of misconceptions or uh, perceptions of the the uh, the public sector and the government and the the pace of the work that happens there. Um, you know, you're now back working in the private sector. You're now at the CDC, and um, I, I I'd love to know like. You know, you've had now experience, multiple experiences on both sides of both private and public sector. Like, how does the pace of innovation and technology differ between those two? I think it depends. Uh, It all comes down for me to organizational culture. You can have public sector organizations or parts of public sector organizations uh, that can move with incredible speed. Okay, and you can have, you know, private sector organizations that are really, uh, really, really slow moving, right? Uh, it sort of depends on, uh, on, on the leadership culture. So look, um, does government move slowly? Yes, it does, for all kinds of reasons. Like there's, you know, ridiculous paperwork. I mean, you, you literally wouldn't believe uh, the, the amount of hassle it, it takes to hire somebody. In, in the US federal government these days, like months and months and months and months and, and mounds and mounds and mounds of paper, right? I think the flip of that is, um, <clears throat> I've just gotten to CDC, but we had a big uh, sort of uh, project release a, a week or two ago that got um, a lot of play on, on Twitter at least. Uh, and it was um, a new dashboard visualizing um, wastewater trends. So um, we can track COVID in in wastewater now uh, by by analyzing uh, analyzing sewage and so the cdc has invested like tens of millions of dollars into this and i got to cdc and i looked at the wastewater part of the website and i was like i have been doing data for 30 years and i literally do not understand what they're trying to tell me uh with this data it was incomprehensible okay and the folks would even admit it now so they asked me if i would help to you know fix it or reimagine it and i said i'll do it but only if i get to pick the team and if everything operates by my rules and we met for the first time on october 26th i picked seven people uh, and we went live on november 28th with a beautiful multi-layered dashboard that you know well is Twitter the only thing that people care about these days? But people like freaked out on Twitter and it got hundreds of thousands of views. And honestly, it was like a really big PR win for CDC. And it took a month, you know, wow. um, whereas 
you know, you, you can be parts of, you know, private sector organizations that people get bogged down in, in strategy and, and PowerPoints and, and different things like that. So, uh, but, but I think the most important thing is, is that, you know, we tend to, um, we tend to stereotype, uh, we tend to stereotype organizations like, you know, public sector, slow, inefficient, you know, boring, uh, private sector, you know, uh, innovative, fast moving. And, you know, those are, I don't think um, they're, they're not accurate in all in all senses. I mean, I'll tell you that again, and I know I've been harping on about the seven years at CMS, but again, it was like a fairly, you know, it left very indelible um, marks in mostly good ways. But when I left CMS uh, and became um, CEO of my own organization, uh, the Healthcare Cost Institute, uh, it was a nonprofit. Everybody worked very hard. But literally for the first, you know, two months after I started, I like, I, I was like, why is nobody sending emails after six o'clock in the, in the evening? Because at CMS, like it just never stopped. Like there might be a pause around six or seven while people, you know, went home and had dinner with their families. But then everything just geared up again uh, after eight o'clock and people were working and answering emails until midnight. And then, you know, you'd get up at six o'clock the next morning and there'd be, you know, 40 unread emails in your inbox because it was just total, total insanity. So um, uh, I think, you know, I also think that it's important, and we're doing this at CDC um, at the moment. I think it's really important and I really want people to consider um, public service. I mean, I'm saying this again from, from a US perspective. I actually have no idea how you get into the civil service in Ireland, even though my, my dad was a civil servant for years. Uh, but. Uh, what we're what we're really pushing at CDC is to get people from uh, the tech sectors to um, uh, to join uh, to join CDC, so we can have good engineers and good product people uh, and different things like that. Because we have a massive task ahead of us. Um, you know, public health and the pub- particularly the public health data infrastructure, you know, failed massively during COVID, and um, you know, Congress has actually been very uh, generous in funding CDC with literally billions of dollars uh, to ensure it doesn't happen again. But uh, unless you have strong people um, on, on, on the inside uh, of these government agencies, I think it's very difficult for these government agencies to supervise, you know, the outside contractors like the Accentures and Deloitte's and Booz Allen's and whoever uh, to uh, effectively, you know, build uh, the new uh, the new systems. You, you need strong people um, inside government. Otherwise, you end up with you know just situations where where money gets wasted and you know uh, projects flail around and you know things end up you know being you know two years late and you know hundreds of mi- hundreds of millions of dollars over budget. So anybody that's listening, that's looking for a career pivot, if you're looking to do something that is purposeful, meaningful, and you can have the opportunity of working with really collaborative people, uh, it sounds like that the public sector is is a potentially great opportunity uh, to step into. Um, so with that, I mean, to, to kind of close this out, uh, Niall, because you've mentioned there that obviously driving more people uh, in the tech space into the public sector is like one of your goals for the foreseeable future. What else is, uh, is next for you? Like what does 2024 bring for you? Yeah. Uh, 2024, I'm fairly excited. So I'm still new at CDC, right? It's only been three, three and a half months. So uh, I definitely, there's a, there's a ton of things that I want to accomplish uh, at CDC in 2024. We've got some really interesting uh, data on, on heat and heat related illnesses. And so um, as that uh, continues to be more of an issue, it's going to have a very uh, direct uh, public health uh, impact. And then just generally working um, across the agency to make sure that these investments that we're making in, in modernizing the, the public health data infrastructure um, uh, are, you know, well spent and well executed. Beyond that, uh, I'm not really sure um, what will happen. Uh, I would like to head back into the 
uh, into the private sector uh, at some stage. I don't really know uh, when when that'll be. Well, you know, I think uh, now that there may be people listening to this that have their own businesses or uh, they are employers themselves. So um, you never know. You may have somebody reaching out to you sooner rather than later, but hopefully not too soon, because obviously being at CDC for only a few months, it sounds like that you've got a multitude of opportunities ahead of you and uh, some exciting work ahead there, especially in heat related diseases, which I think, you know, as uh, as somebody that this summer actually had like a brief bout of heat stroke, uh, I'm going to say is probably something that you, many may not think of, but is actually a, probably a bigger issue than uh, many realize. So um, hopefully, I'm hopefully uh, this next year, brings you a lot of success there and uh, all the best for the future. And just thank you again, Niall, for joining for the podcast today. Cheers, Dave. I really appreciate uh, you uh, reaching out to me. I, I enjoyed the, the conversation and my little uh, personal trip down uh, memory lane. <laughs> Love it. And uh, yeah, and then just finally, um, uh, Niall, uh, if anybody is interested in uh, reaching out to you, where could they find you? Uh, Twitter or X uh, at N underscore Brennan. Uh, so I'm, you know, uh, reasonably active on there. And then uh, they can also, uh, people should feel free to uh, reach out to me on, on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to chat. A massive thank you to our guest, Nal Brennan, for sharing his experience working in D.C., and moving from the private sector to the public sector and straight into CDC in the last few months. We hope you found this fascinating as we did. For now, let's have a quick preview of our next episode. So I traveled, you know, 45, 46 states during my time here, and I met Irish people everywhere I went. Um, some of them Irish born and some of them seven, eight generations ago. And I just thought it was extraordinary that for such a small country as we are, we have this reach right across the United States, you know, from all levels, right the way up to the Oval Office, at all levels of industry as well, of healthcare, like some of the premier cancer researchers in this country are, are Irish born. I just felt there was something there to explore. That's why I call the book The Tribe, because it feels like a tribe when you're here, when you're part of it. You know, you meet someone, you start talking, oh, you're Irish. Even in the tiniest diner in the tiniest town in the middle of America, that will happen to you. So I just wanted to explore what it is that gives Ireland this unique position, this kind of love, this grow that Irish America has for us. We will be back in two weeks. Thank you for listening.